Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. this time period between our celebration of Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. And before we jump into Ash Wednesday, Lent, and Easter, we thought it would be a fun time to kind of look at some of these strange, unusual, and quite frankly, weird stories that are in the Bible. They are not often taught. They are certainly not often preached upon because as you can see from today's reading, you get there and you go, what am I supposed to do with this? How do you preach on this? Well, with the grace of God, I hope to show you. But really, this is an opportunity to look at why this text is here. God isn't a flippant God. God is constantly thinking farther ahead than we can even see. And God has allowed this to be here. And our duty is to figure out why. Why is this story here? So let's talk about the context of it. You'll notice that I'm reading to you about a prophet from a book that is entitled Kings. And that's because the rise and the establishment of a monarchy in the promised land is directly tied to the rise and perpetuation of the prophetic word in earthly vessels known as prophets. Before they got their first king, the people of Israel relied upon leaders that were kind of ad hoc, that were called up for a purpose, and they had some prophetic power invested in them. And they would lead for a time, and then they would stop. We have some of our greatest prophets rising in this way, such as Moses, who was assisted by his brother, the high priest Aaron. We also have the tremendous tradition of the book of Judges, where people would rise up for a time and have either military or political power, as well as some prophetic word. And then when their task was over, they would go back into their normal existence. Well, over time, the people of Israel wanted what everybody else seemed to have. Everybody else seems to have a king. Why don't we have a king? And so they cry out and cry out, and finally God says, fine. You think you want a king? I will give you what you want. Let's see how this goes. And God gives them their king. And as you can tell from these multiple books of kings, they end up going through multiple kings. And it doesn't work at all the way they thought it would work. Instead, every king is just like you and I, flawed and mortal and certainly prone to human sin. And so because of that, and because of their power and authority and their central position in the governance of the people, their flaws often lead the other people into sin. Their misdirection and missteps have ramifications and ripple effects for their people. And so in the reading today, we see the rise of the prophets who not only offer a critique, but also try to lead the people back to God, as well as the monarchs themselves. And this prophet that we have here, Elisha, is the third in the line of prophets above prophets, the most well-known, well-respected, and actually most effective prophets of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. In that tradition, we begin with Moses, obviously Moses, who leads the people from their bondage and oppression in Egypt into the promised land, or almost up into the promised land, and then he makes a mistake. Then we have the prophet Elijah, 
And Elijah has a huge battle against the priests of Baal and Asherah out on Mount Carmel, this huge Super Bowl of religion, and wins, triumphs. And there he experiences what it is to call the people back into repentance and to ask them to put away their earthly ways that have become an obstruction to their relationship to God. So he is an, ex- an incredible prophet, and he's also the one that will be taken up in a whirlwind. But before Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind, he is told by God to anoint his successor. And that is the prophet Elisha that we heard about today. And it's difficult because their names sound very close, but you have Elijah with a J and Elisha with a S-H. And so this is a young man. We find that if we went back to the end of 1 Kings, when Elijah comes out to throw his mantle as a sign of calling Elisha into this prophetic ministry, Elisha says, I'll go with you. Can you just give me a moment? I would like to go back and kiss my father and my mother goodbye. That's indicating to us his youth, that he's young. Because of the age differential in parents and their children in this time, most people, when they came to full adulthood where they were actually in charge over the homestead and in charge of whatever vocation their father had were 30. This is exactly what we see with Jesus when he comes to the age of fruition at 30 when he should be taking over the vocation of his earthly father Joseph. What we find is that Joseph is gone because there was a great age gap and they did not live as long. And so just as Jesus is 30 and going out into earthly ministry, we find that we still have his mother and his siblings, but there's no tell of Joseph for he has passed away. But the fact that Elisha says, I want to go say goodbye to my dad, means that he's probably in his 20s. And as you can tell from the text, he's going prematurely bald. And while I have not had this problem, I am going gray. So I've had a little bit of a taste of what happens when your hair changes. And I've certainly had a lot of conversations with people who have had hair thinning and hair loss. And back in Elisha's day, there wasn't really much you could do about it. You couldn't decide to become an aficionado of baseball caps. You couldn't go to the hair club for profits. And you couldn't go and get any Rogaine. So if you were going to lose your hair and go bald, everybody was going to see. And that's precisely what happens. So we have this prophet, this servant of God who has just had a whirlwind of things happen to him. The first is that his mentor has literally been carried up into heaven by a chariot of fire. And now it's all on him. And he's received a double portion of that same spirit of the Lord that gave Elijah his power. And then after trying to deal with the loss of his mentor and suddenly being out on his own, Elisha has the first opportunity to utilize his power in his earthly miracles, the way in which he is going to help or bless or curse other people. That's why we have two stories here, and they have to go together. The first story is him showing his power to bless. He's actually not going to just replicate, but exceed something that Moses did, the greatest of prophets. So what happens is he goes to a village and they say, you know, this is a good place. The position is good. Everything seems fine, but we've got a problem. And that is that our water is tainted. It's actually unhealthy. People are dying. Uh, Women are miscarrying their babies. And our agricultural efforts are completely stunted because the water is bad. And so we need your help. And Elisha says, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. And then he blesses it and he utters that incredible prophetic utterance, thus says the Lord, and he 
cures the water. He is able to transform the water into something that was polluted, into something that was potable and healthy, so that the people could stay where they were, so that the people would no, no longer experience death and disaster when they drank the water that they needed, but also so that their efforts to be fruitful in the land would be, in effect, a blessing. All of this is his first miracle to show this. This is similar to what Moses did, but even beyond that, because when Moses was bringing the Israelites toward the promised land, they reach a place where the water is bitter. They called it Merah. And there he blesses a piece of wood and throws it into the water, and it says that the water became sweet. Well, he's kind of flavored the water. The water was bitter, but it wasn't deadly. The water at this town where Elisha goes is actually polluted and deadly. The fact that people are dying from drinking it and that plants won't grow is a sign that the water is truly a problem. It's not just a taste test. It's a huge transition. It's a purification and a healing that he is able to do. But then there is the other side of prophetic power. You can bless and you can curse. And we see this. The, the prophet Moses has the ability to do this. Not only can he heal and bring forth life-giving water for people from rocks, not only can he bring about signs to guide and guard them, but when they make their missteps and when they fail or when they anger God, he is able to call forth plagues. He is able to ensure that, you know, you thought you wanted meat. Well, now you can have it till it comes out your nose. And oh, by the way, there's going to be a plague afterwards. There are plenty of circumstances that we see this repeated in the book of Exodus and Numbers. But then we get to Elijah, and Elijah is able to do something similar. He can simultaneously bless the widow of Zarephath, her son, and the household in which he is staying, while his words have brought about a famine. The entire area, not only of his home country under King Ahab, but further areas outside of that have been swathed in dryness. There's a drought so that people are not able to get the water they need. They can't grow the food that they need, and so they're struggling for food. So even as his presence is a blessing to the one household, his word has brought on a plague, a curse, onto the land in order to help the people refocus on God. They had it too easy, and they took God for granted. So we see this tradition of blessing and curse. And now it's Elisha's turn to show that he has that same power. And unfortunately, the circumstances are rather tragic. Here is this young 20-something, minding his own business, walking past the city on his way to where he's supposed to be going to serve God. And there is this group that comes out. Now, this is where the English gets problematic for us. So oftentimes it's translated as young children, small boys, however you want to put that. It's disturbing to us as modern readers to look at it. And maybe you're like me. The first time you read it, you're picturing like third, fourth, and fifth graders all massing out here and yelling at this guy. And you think to yourself, it's a bunch of kids. Just go on your way. But actually, the two Hebrew words that are translated here are the same two Hebrew words that are used to explain the age of Solomon when he takes the throne, which is 20. When he inherits the throne after his father, King David, Solomon is in his 20s. And he is still considered to be young because he's not yet 30, kind of that age of official transition. And this is where language can become problematic for us. For instance, in the United Methodist Church, we have a category called young adult. And it's a rather large swath of age. It runs from 18 to 30, and in some conferences to 35. There's a huge difference between someone who's 18 and someone who's 
30. And that's not to say that you can't have a reversal of what you're expecting. I know 17-year-olds that are more mature than some 35-year-olds I know. But there's a difference in their life experience or in what they're expected to do culturally and what they've been empowered and able to do. And so when you have a huge swath of age grouping, it's hard to figure out what exactly you're talking about. But if we go by the translation that's applied in Solomon's case, it's likely that the group that comes out are somewhere in their 20s. And they come out and you would think, well, why aren't they working? What are they doing? And maybe that's part of the testimony. These are probably a people that are struggling. If you have a whole mob of 20-somethings that have nothing better to do than come out from the gates of the city and harass passers-by, poor Elisha is walking by and he's all by himself. He has no one to be his companion and no one to be his defender that anyone else can see. And he's clearly going prematurely bald. And so rather than doing what we are commanded to do in the commandments of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, rather than doing that, these young men decide to take advantage of the situation and persecute poor Elisha. They see that he's alone and that he's vulnerable, and they see something with which they can take advantage of him by making him feel worse about himself, and they do. They come out and mock him, specifically making fun of his balding head. And he does what a lot of people have done, and that is he lashes back. But unfortunately for that group of 42 young men, they're messing with a prophet. And when he gets angry and curses you in the name of God, there is tremendous power and authority behind that. That's something that a lot of us don't always think about. I never thought about the strength of the prophetic word in that sense until I became a pastor and then suddenly you could put on your robes and your vestments and it's amazing the power you will have. I still remember the first time I showed up at a wedding and I had everything in a garment bag and as I walked in, the owner of the establishment assumed that I was the wedding singer and treated me one way. And then once I emerged again from the ladies' room dressed in my clergy robes and vestments, you can imagine the difference in how he talked to me and treated me. And it's the same thing with our words. I can remember the first time that someone quoted me back to me. It's amazing that someone not only listened to me, but they kept it and remembered it. And then they were able to understand it and accurately quote it back to me. That's the kind of trifecta that we don't always get as clergy. So it truly is a blessing when you have that opportunity. And to have somebody listen to you and hear your words and find them to be such a blessing that they want to remember them and then offer them back to you and to others. That's an amazing power of the word. And so because of that, we have to be careful with what we say and do. But that's not just for clergy. That's for all of us, all of us who have been created in the image of our God those of us who have been granted the experience of having the Holy Spirit be enlivened in our form means that it's also enlivened in our words. And so when we bless, people feel blessed. And when we curse, we can leave an incredible scar and pain and suffering from that, which is what those 42 young men discover. They've messed with the wrong person. And our text doesn't say exactly what Elisha said. It just says that he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And he could just say that, curse you in the name of Yahweh. And when it happened, God heard and received that, for this is his servant, his prophet. And two female bears come out of the woods 
and maul 42 of those irreverent and thoughtless young people. And that can have incredible effects on the town. Imagine if you suddenly lost 42 of your young men who had not quite taken over for the patriarchs of their households and their families. They could have been killed. They could have been disabled. They might have lost their ability to continue to bear children and be fruitful, as is the first commandment from the book of Genesis. The ripple effects and the ramifications of some really bad choices at the beginning of that encounter could affect the entire city, not just families within it. And so what we find is that sometimes when we read Scripture, we're not just looking and reading about the things that God says, do this, this is perfect, this is how you do it. These are weird stories that we have here. Sometimes the lesson is what's not said, or don't do this, this is a bad idea. There are a whole bunch of stories that are so atrocious that we never preach on them. And I could do those. That would be a whole thing of taboo stories. But that's not what we're doing here. We're doing some weird stories. These are strange stories, and we have to figure out what the lesson is. And I think the lesson is that is powerful, and, and with all the authority that was vested in the 20-something Elisha, he does what a lot of us do long after we're out of our 20s. Someone says or does something that really cuts him to the bone. It really hurts him, and he's feeling embarrassed and humiliated, hurt and vulnerable, and he lashes back. He hits back, and he hits back hard, and they will never mock him again. And the fact is that you have to remember, you know, people shared oral histories. Can you imagine what they said about the prophet Elisha in Bethel from then on? You can imagine the fear in the story that happened there while the other town on the other side is talking about how wonderful he is. He saved us. He saved our unborn children. He saved our crops. He saved our future. Because we, as disciples of Jesus Christ, have that same power. How often are there those that sing our praises and have been affected by our faith put into form and given action through missions and ministries and think that we are wonderful people? But then there's always somebody that doesn't like us. And it's not just somebody, you know, that knew us from our childhood or somebody in our family, but people that encounter us and don't see what the others see because we are human beings. And sometimes in that moment of decision, we choose to say and act in one way that taints their vision of us. Their experience is soured and they will never be able to think of us the way the others did. That's why it's imperative that we heed what Jesus teaches us many books later in the New Testament. And that is not to strike back, not to continue the cycle of pain and suffering, punishment and vengeance. Instead, we need to stop responding as a human being and allow God's divine grace to be how we choose to speak and act and respond in this world. And that's a hard thing because when someone finds your vulnerability and they really push at it and they dig at you, it's innate that you want to lash back. It's visceral. Sometimes it comes up before you can help yourself. But we can't be that way. Jesus even models this for us. He was humiliated and tortured with words and mocking all the way to the cross. And even then, as he was taking our punishment so that we would not have to suffer and die for our sins, choosing love and forgiveness over the ways of the world, we have countless times that people were berating him, mocking him, 
rubbing it in his face that he was suffering physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. But he didn't lash back. He chose to stop the cycle, to intercede on their behalf with prayer, and to ask for God's grace for them, recognizing that sometimes when we are trying so hard to hurt other people, it's because we don't fully understand what's going on. There is a flaw in us as much as the one that we are trying to hurt. And so Jesus offers us a different perspective, one that is born from the height of the cross rather than the lowliness of human condition. This is his gift to us. You do not have to continue to be the way that you were. God wants us to be the very best that we can, to be the best of who we are. And the Holy Spirit is here to give us that strength, that power, and that courage as we embrace that challenge from God. Don't be how you were yesterday. Be better. Be the best that you can be. And I give you my word. I give you my grace and my love. I even give you a piece of myself in the Holy Spirit so that this can be done. Because so many people see the negative side of the church. I can remember being in seminary after the sex scandal in the Roman Catholic Church broke and people assuming that that was part of mine. I'm obviously not a Catholic priest. I don't understand how that's my problem. But we have to remember that to the world, Christianity looks all the same. And so a stain from one, a blame and a curse from one feels like all of us are tainted. When there is financial embezzlement and, and just incredible lack of good stewardship and good thought on behalf of certain clergy and churches, it reflects poorly on all of us. We all get tainted, which makes it so much more vital that we use our words to do what Christ came to do. The gospel account of John tells us very clearly that Christ did not come to condemn, did not come to curse. Christ came to heal, to bring forgiveness, because what motivates healing and forgiveness is God's love. And that's what we are called to, be vessels of God's love, not God's curse. It doesn't take very long in the prophetic ministry for it to be more about calling people home than it is cursing them and casting them out. It's not a good model for ministry. Shunning and casting people aside and refusing to let them in is not helpful to healing and wholeness. And it certainly doesn't reflect holiness. So we have to be very thoughtful and very careful, prayerfully discerning what our response should be. And I know that we live in a culture, especially here in the United States, where if you can hit back hard and fast, that makes you cooler. But it's not about that in the Bible. It's not about that in Christ. If we have to take a moment to stop and center ourselves before we respond, what we are showing is that good things come in God's time, not as a backlash, not as a quick, sarcastic wit, but instead that love takes its time coming forth from the heart and sharing what is possible in order to bring about hope that we can outgrow and outlast suffering and pain that instead we can be redeemed and that we can offer that same redemption to others. I believe that is the story behind this weird encounter of Elisha and the 42 young men. That perhaps if in that moment there had been the love of Christ in the heart of the prophet, he might have found a better and a holier way to respond. 
But he, like us, is a human being. Prophets aren't perfect people. Moses hits the rock when he was told to use his words. We have Elijah being overly dramatic and having a success and feeling like he's the only one left. And we have Elisha, who uses his power to get some vengeance on some who probably needed more compassion than they ever got. We, too, are those people who have been given tremendous power and authority, not just those who are ordained clergy, but those who bear Christ in the world. And because we call ourselves Christians, it is his name and his reputation that we either serve by our blessings or our curses. May we find the strength and the courage to change how we speak and act so that day by day, people have more blessing to talk about from disciples of Jesus Christ than reasons to curse our existence. May they come to discover that we are a people who use our words to bring about healing and wholeness rather than to perpetuate a cycle of pain and suffering. And above all, because of the way that we create space for there to be relationship, righteous relationship and reconciliation, may those who have been tainted and brought to despair by the state of this world find the light in the darkness and find that Jesus Christ, as well as his gospel, is truly for all people, especially those who think that they don't need him or want him. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.